Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And can you believe it? We are in October. It is two days until my birthday. Happy birthday to me. And um, here we are, trundling on with our series that we began the year with, which is uh, all talking all about divine intervention. And uh, and I want to talk about a couple of things specifically here to kind of frame up the next couple of episodes of the podcast. So what's coming to you in this episode and in the next are a couple of really, really fascinating conversations I've had with, with two theologians, both who come from the perspective of kind of open and relational theology, which uh, you'll get a sense of as you listen to the, the talks I have. And they're, and they're centered around Jesus and the story of Jesus and the person of Jesus and how we kind of make sense of this. And the reason I think this is an important conversation in light of what we've been talking about really all the way through this podcast, is because I think some of what happens is we have these very concrete ideas given to us by religious traditions, and in this case, the Christian tradition, around how we are supposed to understand the Jesus story. And and in many senses, I think one of the big framing paradigms for it is that, that sort of God is is floating around out there somewhere, you know, the kind of more conventional theism that we've been pushing back against in this series. Uh, that God is out there somewhere and then comes uh, to earth in the form of a baby. And it's the kind of story that if you're immersed in it, it it's like, yeah, yeah, cool. But when you try and really think through it, it, be- it becomes a little uh, more uh, complex, a little more um, hard to believe even at times, or just difficult to comprehend what it means to say that somehow Jesus is God. And, you know, even in conversations I have with people who maybe who... who aren't of Christian faith, they really struggle to get their head around the idea that somehow this Jesus character was in fact God walking among us, but but still human. And I know there are there are um, thoughtful and reflective um, responses to that theologically within the Christian tradition and within Orthodox, what we call Christology, the study of Jesus. And yet I can't help but feeling that, that those conversations still leave us in a place that that doesn't necessarily reflect the kind of real experience of our lived lives, right? So we we live in this world and experience it in a certain kind of way. And I would like to think that what we experience of the world is in some way reflective of um, what the world is uh, and our experience even of, of something mystical or divine. You know, all of that becomes information to us as we process theology. And one of the challenges when kind of hearing these historical stories where, where it seems like God acts so radically differently in the past than God might act now. It's like, well, how do we actually reconcile that? Now, one option, of course, is to say, well, it's all just silly primitive nonsense. And that's one angle you can take, I suppose. And yet, I still find myself intrigued by the idea of faith and of spirituality and of, and of belief in God, um, even if I don't mean by those terms anything like what I used to mean by them. But all of this does leave me with the question of how, how do I make sense of the Jesus story? And, and especially as I move from a conventional theism towards a, a panentheism, a, a, the idea that God is in and through all things, that the world is kind of somehow in God and God is affected by the world and the world is affected by God and so on. If we take that kind of framework, then how does that help us to make sense of the Jesus story? If, if God isn't sort of invading the earth in Jesus from outside, then then how do we make sense of what it is the... Um, the original uh, eyewitnesses, if you like, the, the, or, or the those who are giving testimony of the Jesus story in the in the New Testament text. You know, what is it that we're trying to explain, describe, get at? 
Why do they do so differently from one another? Um, it's a whole kind of mysterious conversation here to dive into. So uh, in this episode, I'm talking with, uh, once again, back on the program, uh, Thomas J. Ord, who you remember from an, a few episodes ago, much earlier in the year, uh, centered around his um, his book, God Can't, around the idea of God as uncontrolling love. So uh, we he's got a follow-up to that book, which is Questions and Answers for God Can't, where he, he basically tackles a bunch of questions that, that people have given him in response to his work in God Can't. And one of the questions that he addresses in that book, and then I wanted to pick up on specifically for this podcast, is what? How do we make sense of the Jesus story in light of this, um, this view of God? And and so, this episode is going to feature that conversation, and we get into all sorts of interesting stuff about miracles and virgin birth and uh, resurrection, and we we dabble in life after death, and we talk about whether Jesus is God or not, or should we worship and pray to Jesus or not, and how we make sense of what makes Jesus unique. Um, we're diving into all of that, and then in the next uh, episode uh, that will follow this one, uh, I speak with uh, Dr. Trip Fuller who uh, is host of Homebrew Christianity Podcast and has just released a book on Christology from this perspective as well. So we have uh, uh, an in-depth conversation about some of these questions again from from a slightly different angle. So um, if you're kind of interested in the Jesus story and how maybe to make some sense of it in light of, I don't know, maybe your own evolving views of God or maybe some questions that you've got or just you're like interested in hearing a different angle on the Jesus story, uh, then these couple of episodes uh, are going to be right up your alley. So looking forward to it. Um, so after, well, of course, my stunning piece of uh, music designed by yours truly, Michael Frost, that plays in every episode of the podcast, um, which is about to hit, and then after that we'll jump into the podcast. Before we do that, uh, I just want to say that, of course, you can get in touch with me at michaelatintheshift.com um, with any questions that you've got about any of the stuff that we've been discussing or about big things that are circling around your head that you'd love to hear uh, us talk about on the on the show. And um, or maybe you just want to get in touch and, and share your story, anything like that. Of course, you can support the work of the podcast by going to Patreon and finding us there. Um, otherwise, that's it. Enjoy this conversation with Thomas J. Ord. So I am joined again by Thomas J. Ord, author of the book um, God Can't, as well as many others, of course, and, uh, and now a new book, uh, Questions and Answers for God Can't. Um, thanks for coming back uh, to speak to me again, Tom. I really appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for hosting me. I guess I guess this is your second time, and you are the first uh, repeat uh, guest. Oh, I'm podcast. so honored. Oh, so uh, I'm going to say you're a regular of the of the show. <laughs> <laughs> you got to send me a coffee mug or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, friend of the podcast, Thomas J. That's Ord. Right. <laughs> Uh, so, so we're going to have a bit of a follow-up conversation from our last one, and if people haven't listened to that last conversation, I'd recommend they they do so as a bit of a catch-up to to where we might pick up from. But if they haven't, um, are you able to just briefly encapsulate the main idea that's coming through in in your work in in these two most recent books, in particular, around the idea of God can't, um, and then we can move from there. Sure. I think, I mean, there are a number of ideas, but I think the one that's kind of an organizing principle 
is that God loves everyone and everything, and this love is inherently uncontrolling. That means God cannot single-handedly bring about any outcomes in relation to the world, not only amongst free will creatures, but less complex creatures, even down to the quarks. I sometimes like to say this, because God loves everyone and everything, God simply can't control anyone or anything. But this isn't the, you know, God watching us from outer space, twiddling his thumbs, you know, the inactive deism God. This is a God who's actively uh, present throughout all creation, um, acting as a real cause, a real influence in the world, in each situation, each creature, again, down to the smallest level. So it's a God who's always active and on whom we rely upon for our existence, for beauty, novelty, truth, all those kind of classical ideas, but whom can't control us or others. Right. Okay. So that's a that's a helpful kind of overarching framework to keep in mind as we as we have this conversation. Um, and I'm right, I think, in 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 saying that this is a this is tied into a panentheist kind of uh, model of God in the world in terms of God's inness and throughness of 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 all of matter and existence itself. Is that would that be correct? That would be correct. I mean, there are a lot of theories of panentheism, mm. but um, yeah, my uh, I I endorse panentheism as the idea that God is present throughout all the world and affected by all the world or influenced by all the world. And so, uh, therefore, there's no separation in the sense that God is out there sometimes and occasionally decides to intervene to come here. No, God's always present to us and always affected by us. So that those those two ideas that you've even briefly mentioned so far, one is a deism where God is out there but doesn't get involved, and the other is that God is out there and sometimes jumps in, are both a similar framing of sort of God's relationship to the world in that sense, even though they are kind of at opposite ends of the interventionist kind of spectrum in terms of one does and one doesn't. Both operate with a similar God-world relationship in mind, I think. Um, and so panentheism here is inviting us to a, to a different way of conceiving of that. So if we were to turn the conversation towards Jesus in particular, now this is something when we spoke last time, I don't think we, we ended up having time to explore but it was it was hanging off to the side as a as a conversation to be had. So I'm glad we've been able to circle back around. And this is something you do uh, speak a bit to in in the questions and answers um, for God can't that's just come out. Um, perhaps if we start at a broad level, how do you see uh, the idea of God as uncontrolling love playing out in the Jesus story in particular? Because obviously, for for those in the Christian tradition, Jesus is central. Yeah. So. So does Jesus fit? Uh, does this come? Does this idea flow from the story of Jesus, or are we squeezing Jesus into it? Or how how did you see Jesus fitting into this whole conversation? Yeah, just about every Christian I know is going to agree with me when I said say that Jesus tells us something important about love. In fact, God's love. I mean, that's a pretty non controversial statement. It gets a little bit more interesting when I make this claim. Jesus's love, as expressed in Scripture, is never controlling. When Jesus does miracles, when uh, Jesus teaches, 
he never ever acts in such a way in which he, he or says God uh, controls us in the sense of being a sufficient cause to use the philosophical language. So that means that uh, the miracles that uh, we sometimes that we see witnessed in Scripture uh, are acts of God in which God acts, but there's some kind of creaturely cooperation, or the conditions of creation are aligned or conducive. Um, and in this new book, I even point out that what many Christians call the virgin birth, or I like to call the Holy Spirit inception. Uh, even this is an instance in which Mary is said to cooperate with the plan, you know, be it unto me, as I think the King James Version puts it. Um, and even more controversial, I think Jesus's very resurrection is an uncontrolling act of God such that there's cooperation on Jesus' part. So in theology, we sometimes break these questions down into the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. If we look at the work of Jesus, it seems like a really strong case for my uncontrolling love argument. Okay, so if, if Jesus is going around um, and these miracles are unfolding, so um, somehow God is seen to be at work here in these in these accounts, your suggestion is that this is not Jesus going around essentially just putting God's miracles on people, if you like, but that there is this cooperation. Um, and we talked, we spoke last time about how that cooperation can be at multiple levels from the sort of conscious person cooperating, like in the Mary example that you mentioned, right through to the invitation to the kind of building blocks and cells of the body to to cooperate with what it is that God is wanting to do or calling Towards is that is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And sometimes I will point to the biblical examples in which Jesus wants apparently to do a miracle but can't do it as evidence for the idea that Jesus doesn't force things on people. So when Jesus goes to his hometown, you know, a couple of the gospels say he can't do miracles there. He goes to one particular pool in which there's lots of people who are seeking a miracle, and he only heals one person there. He doesn't just come in and go, okay, boom, you're all good to go. Um, That suggests there's something interesting going on. Or Mm. some of the things I've noticed is, for instance, like uh, the Gospel of Mark will say that Jesus comes to a town and heals many, which previously I just would have assumed, oh, that means he healed everybody. But mm. it doesn't actually say that. Um, and so this, uh, these little clues have now popped up that now that I have a particular framework of God's uncontrolling love, uh, I see them differently and think Scripture is even more supportive of the proposal I have on the table. Okay. Um, I'm going to come back to virgin birth and resurrection. Um, Great. Surely. Uh, let's stick with these sort of the miracles of, of Jesus' life for a moment. Um, so there seems to be this kind of uh, participation or cooperation with other creatures. What, what if we were to, say, take uh, his less personal miracles? So mm, yeah. um, water to wine, walking on water, um, yeah. calming the storm, Those... these, these kinds of more um, cosmic miracles in a sense or, 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 or creationally Miracles, you know, they're not related to, to conscious entities responding or cooperating. Um, yeah, those are harder for me. I, mm. I just want to admit that up front. Mm. 
because, you know, I can imagine, you know, organs, muscles, cells cooperating or not with God, but I don't think water has free will or agency to respond as water or, you know, five loaves and two fish. I don't think a dead fish or I, mean, I guess maybe a dead fish has some responsiveness, but not the same. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a little bit harder for these. So when I come to these kinds of, a lot of biblical scholars call them nature miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, when I come to these, I ask myself the question, do the passages rule out my view? In other words, do they explicitly say G- that God or Jesus controlled them? And they don't do that. I'm not saying they give a ringing endorsement for my view, but yeah. they also don't give a, you know, rule out my view. They're kind of neutral. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, the language is really even tilting my way, even though I don't think, for instance, water has free will. So like this, this language in scripture, even the wind and the waves obey. Mm-hmm. I mean, Really, does water have the choice to obey or not? <laughs> like, that's a weird way to talk. Right. It sounds awfully anthropomorphic. Mm. But that leans in my direction, even though I don't pick up and run with that and say, see, look at there, even water has agency. Um, mm. I, I don't go that direction. I mean, I think it's interesting as we reflect on these passages that we are we are reading stories told with the ancient worldview as well, right? Sure. Um, and that, well, from my perspective, there is an openness to us to keep exploring the kind of language and theology that helps us to make sense of the way in which they narrate these tales. Um, you know, similar, I, I suppose, if you look at the the church tradition, you know, gospel writers weren't Trinitarian, um, no. the way that we would understand it later in the church tradition. Uh, and yet developing Trinitarian theology isn't seen as um, going against scripture, but as seeking to... Um, continue the conversation and and tease it out and and offer some ways of thinking that might help us to make sense of what's good, what we what we read and and I you know I, so I see this conversation in some respects as as being able to do that that same kind of thing even the the scientific realizations we have now about reality that that they didn't have in the first century um, yeah and the openness to that kind of theological innovation I think is is kind of important I like that I, I appreciate you saying that. As you were speaking, I was thinking about um, those nature miracles and the way that scholars throughout history have tried to come to terms with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the ways is to say they don't tell us something metaphysically true or ontologically true, but they tell us something pedagogically true or symbolically true. Mm. So, you know, a, a good example of this would be the five loaves and two fishes that I mentioned earlier. Is it the case that they actually multiplied and fed all these people? Or is this telling us, teaching us something about the sufficiency of God and the ability to share with one another? I mean, I've heard plenty of sermons on mm. both accounts there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like everybody wants to get on board that some of the miracles, some of the claims or statements about what nature is doing is symbolic and not metaphysically true. Mm-hmm. Like I remember singing in Sunday school when I was a kid, the Psalms that talk about the trees in the field clapping their hands. Mm-hmm. Now, like I've never heard anybody take that like metaphysically true that yes, trees actually have hands that pop out and start clapping. We think there's some sort of symbolism 
And so if it's true there, then I think we have license to try to ask what might be true in other cases. But I'm not a person who wants to sort of swipe it all away and say, well, it's all just a story. It's just a myth. It's just a narrative trying to teach us a lesson. And we shouldn't ask any historical or metaphysical questions. I'm not willing to go there. Mm. But I don't think it's an either or kind of choice. In some sense, it's a it's a more complicated but more interesting conversation to try and <laughs> to try and inhabit a, a, a reading of the text which is able to be open to to miracle to yes. mystery to event that's that might have not occurred other, outside of God's action or involvement, um, but also allow for there to be some stories that are. You know, I, I think it's very easy to, to end up on one or the other, where you either yes. you either take it all literally, uh, these things definitely all happen in exactly the way that they're told, or it's all symbolic because the world doesn't work like that. Yeah, and, and I, I think don't those are, do either one. Yeah, <laughs> they're the easier positions, of course. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but but they're probably the least interesting from my perspective, and the least uh, reflective of reality as far as I've experienced it. Um, yeah. Reality, reality is more ambiguous than that in, in many respects. I think our experience of life is... Um, okay, what about what about uh, the um, volume of miracles we see in Jesus? So mm, yeah. I'm aware that there's you know a, a reasonable length of period of time that's condensed into these stories, but we yeah. do seem to see, um, let's say, compared to my attempts <laughs> <laughs> in my, especially in my you know uh, height, the height of my Pentecostal passion. Um, you know, which were, were flat, rather flailing, and then yeah, uh, and too. even <laughs> and even if you take the sort of I don't know the the ones who seem to tell the best stories, uh, we do seem to see in 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 Jesus this this particularly high volume of the miraculous in these tales. Um, do you have a sense of why there might be more cooperation, more cooperation, or more of is it more of God's action? Is it more of creaturely cooperation? Um, is it that Jesus is very, you know, got a really charismatic voice that gets gets the people going? Um, what what do you think is going on there with why Jesus yeah. seems to be bumping into these miracles much more often than than otherwise we might think? Let me put one option and put it off the table as one I don't believe in. Mm-hmm. And that's the option that God just tries harder when Jesus is around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not into that. I okay. think God is just doing the utmost at all times and all places, no matter who the person is. So it's not that God sometimes tries harder. Um, so now we're kind of left with two other options. Jesus was a special person, and people cooperated with Jesus more than usual. And, of course, those can easily be you know, linked together there. Was Jesus more charismatic? I suspect he was. Did he have wise things to say? I mean, we've got scriptures that are pretty amazing, so that's going to be part of it. I think there's another factor here, though, that also appears in scriptures that doesn't usually get mentioned in these kinds of conversations, and that's the empathy and love Jesus has for others. I know that in my own life, I'm much more open to being influenced by someone who I know truly loves me, who truly empathizes where I'm at. Now, if Jesus apparently does this perfectly, as far as we know, at least it's what the tradition has said, but the scriptures give us lots of evidence that even if it wasn't perfect, it was consistent and and often. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, 
this is going to make people much more willing to take a risk in cooperation with God. It doesn't mean that their bodies, you know, become robots and Jesus, you know, is the hypnotist who just controls everybody. I'm not saying that. But a person who has that kind of empathy and love and compassion is likely to engender more cooperation from others. I see it in my own life and in others' life. Why wouldn't it be more so with Jesus? Mm. Um, And then I think there's another issue here that kind of goes to um, to the question of writing the history of Michael Frost and writing the history of Jesus Christ. Um. You know, what we have in the Gospels come 40, 50 years after, even longer, uh, Jesus was around. And, um, you know, when you talk about stories of someone you loved and thought was amazing, you don't give detailed descriptions of what he or she did when they were in the bathroom urinating, you know? Not usually. <laughs> unless yeah, you, unless it's a uh, rock stars biography, and then yeah, it's much more then. likely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless it was unusual or something. But, uh, so, in other words, when you think about a great person, you tend to want to hit the highlights, right? Mm. Because especially if you're trying to persuade other people how great that person is. So, mm. when you write scriptures, you tend uh, when you write the history of this person that ended up being scripture, you're going to put as positive a spin on things as possible because you're trying to say, hey, following this guy can change your life. You could be transformed if you follow this Jesus of Nazareth. And so you want to give some evidence and reasons. Now, I'm all totally on board with Jesus being a transforming figure. I just think that then shapes the kind of gospels we have, the stories we have, such that it's amazing we do have stories in which Jesus is said not to be able to do miracles in his mm-hmm. hometown. I mean, like, that's pretty awesome. So those are some of the, the ways I handle your good question. Sure. And, and, and the Gospels themselves are clearly written, you know, the, the fact that each one is written with a different theological emphasis in mind or a different yes. point, in, you know, that, that communicating to a different audience. Um, and that means that the story does shift and change or that different things are emphasized. And, and if that's the case, and if we can accept that to be the case, um, then then it also stands to reason that there is a shaping of the story itself in such a way as to be compelling and convincing. And, and right. yeah, you, you hit, you, you, like you say, you hit the high notes. Uh, you don't tell the sort of the two months Jesus stayed in such and such a town and had a bit of a break and yeah. made some <laughs> made some made some things and. And uh, tried out a new tried out a new sermon that didn't work so good, you know. Yeah, uh, you, exactly. <laughs> you, uh, you just get a Jesus who seems to float into situations and and just does these amazing, you know, gives the amazing talk, does the amazing thing. And, um, yeah. You don't you don't see the you don't see the work behind the scenes or the failures most most often. Or the, and, you know, I'm not saying Jesus walked around failing at everything he did either. But the the, the ambiguity yeah. or the complexity of the character of Jesus, we don't. We don't get as much insight to um, in these in these accounts, and perhaps that doesn't help when we come to have conversations like this. In, in some <laughs> aspects, I think so. Okay, let's uh, we'll 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 go to resurrection and then circle back around to um, virgin birth, so we can talk a bit about the idea of incarnation as well. Uh, you said uh, that Jesus cooperated with his resurrection. Yeah. I think you said something like that. How do you cooperate when you're dead? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I think in order to make the kind of case I want to make, I have to begin by saying something that everyone I think should say, and that was, I wasn't there when the resurrection happened, <laughs> and neither was any of the other gospel writers. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like we've got a bird's eye view, and we or we've got a video recording. Even if we did, you know, what would that look like? Who knows? So let me start there. That I'm obviously in the realm of speculation. Yes, of course. Secondly, um, I want to then ask the question, have we had other resurrections? Have we other, had other people come back to life after being dead? Boy, we have them a ton. <laughs> That's actually quite common, near what people call near-death experiences. Right. Um, now, in the theological literature, people have wanted to sometimes make a distinction between a resurrection or, and a re- resuscitation. Mm. And um, I understand the motive there, um, but I think we have to be honest about what kind of evidence we have for people coming back to life and ask the question, um, when these people are revived or resuscitated and they have these near-death experiences, what did they say happened and how do they come back to to life? Um, And the answers to that vary, but there's always some kind of things happening to them they say they make some, sometimes they talk about making choices. They don't want to go to the light. And there's all kinds of things going mm-hmm. on. So I think the near-death experience literature can give us some help. It doesn't give a slam dunk answer, but it, I think we need to keep that in mind. What about the scriptures? Um, again, we don't have an eyewitness account. But we have some interesting details that, I think, can push us to the kind of position I propose. And here's one of them. In Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus, Matthew says that an angel comes and rolls away the stone before Jesus is resurrected. It's a really weird detail. Uh, It's interestingly similar to someone rolling a stone away for Lazarus before he comes out. But It's a strange thing to think that God has to have an angel go roll away a stone before God resurrects Jesus, as if stones are just too much for Jesus or for God to handle. Um, (laughs) So as you begin to look at these kinds of things, you all of a sudden see that there are some other factors that are playing a role. They don't prove my point. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm just saying that once you start going down this chain of thought that I've gone down, then these things start to pop out. Or here's another thing. Um, You know, philosophers debate about what makes a person a person, and usually the conversations come down to a question about the mind-body relationship. Mm. Um, Some people say soul or spirit, but um, let's suppose Jesus has something like a mind and a body. I think the body's pretty obvious, but and most people would grant that Jesus has a mind. Um, And a lot of people think, and I'm one of them, that when we die, our minds continue on, our souls, our spirits. We have, in the literature, we call this continued subjective experiences beyond bodily death. Right. Um, If Jesus has those, don't you think Jesus would be wanting to cooperate with God in whatever God has in mind, including a resurrection? So Mm -hmm. there you've got an obvious cooperative agent involved. Now, not that our minds can control our bodies. I'm not saying that. 
So then the most difficult part comes down to how do these cells, these organs, these tissues, these muscles <laughs> that make up Jesus' body, how do they cooperate with God? And, um, you know, I think bodies continue to, you know, do things after the heart stops and even after, I mean, we don't know this, but apparently when the mind or spirit leaves, so they don't disappear into nothingness, there's mm. something there. But as I go and think about this particular issue, then my mind goes to what the Bible says about the post-resurrection experiences. What do people say Jesus is like after he's out of the tomb? And here it gets really weird, as you know. You know, Some people mistake him for a gardener, even though he's standing right there. Two guys walk with him for miles and have a conversation and don't recognize him until he breaks bread. Disciples are in a room and everything is closed and instantaneously Jesus appears and says something to, um, to Thomas. Uh, Jesus appears to St. Peter, boom, out of nowhere on the road. What kind of body can do all of these things? It's not the kind of body that went in that grave. Mm -hmm. uh, so... All these things together <laughs> uh, that I've been throwing out here, they don't prove that my point is correct. But I think uh, that if you begin with the notion of God's uncontrolling love, you can pull together these strands to present a case that I think is more plausible than the alternatives. Sure. Okay. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I mean, uh, I would... Perhaps we'll have to have another conversation sometime, and we can uh, we can we can postulate around uh, some of the other interesting aspects of that. Perhaps we don't have time to now, even even to consider life after death and and uh, and Good. how we might conceive of that. In I don't know if this is something you've done any work on, actually, but um, I'm kind of fascinated in the conversation around how we, knowing what we know now about matter and reality and embodiedness and yeah. the brain and uh, the mind-body relationship and, and all of that, how we might, is, is there a way to to conceive of some of these conversations that that in the in the ancient world you could just say and everyone's like, sure, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> sure, life That's after right. death, sure, new creation, sure, you have, you know, all of that stuff was like, okay. Um, but I think now with a lot more information um, come a lot more questions about how, you know, are these, are these plausible things to, to yes. believe? It's a really important conversation. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is this is an invitation to come on for a third exactly conversation. Exactly right. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> um, okay. So we'll, we'll leave that over there for now because otherwise that's a, that's a rabbit hole. We'll, uh, we'll wind our way, way down. But um, let's, let's circle back around to the, to the virgin birth. Very peculiar story in many respects. Yeah. Um, and, and this is tied into the conversation as well around incarnation itself. So, yeah. so perhaps we can talk about those together in, in some respects. Um, many people, I think, when they when, when they think about Jesus, you know, the, the Christian tradition has claim makes this claim that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God, who has become present to us, who's entered into the human experience in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and typically you have the, the two natures Christology. Jesus has this human nature and this divine nature uh, that are united in the one person. And so um, 
the incarnation then is this kind of God entering into the story in a particular kind of way, entering into history, human history in a particular kind of way that I think most people would think about in an interventionist manner. God has jumped into the story, so to speak, yeah. in Jesus. And and so um, the virgin birth itself then becomes a, a way of pointing to that and saying, see, uh, here, here was this girl Mary, this woman, and uh, God has, she cooperates, sure, um, says, may it be to me as you said. Um, but but surely there's this kind of intervention idea happening here um, with God entering the story. Um, do, is there a way in, in your framework to, to make a little bit of sense of how we might think about um, what's going on here with, with Jesus? Do you, because I think yes. the 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 kind of God from outside jumping into the story in Jesus with Jesus doesn't doesn't fit with the panentheist kind of view doesn't fit with the non-interventionist no. way of thinking. So so what are that's, some ways of thinking about this? Yeah, that's where I want to start with your good question mm-hmm. by giving my answer, and that is, um, I really have come to strongly dislike the little phrase "the incarnation," mm-hmm. as if one time Je- that God was present. In the world, no. I mean, if you believe that, that means you have to think that God wasn't interacting previous to Jesus, <laughs> and and isn't now that Jesus has died and ascended, or however you want to understand that language. No, I think incarnation is everlastingly true. Jesus is not the first person whom God incarnated. God incarnates all of reality. That doesn't mean all of reality is God. That's why we're panentheists rather mm-hmm. than pantheists. But um, to talk about incarnation and only mean Jesus, I think does really poor justice to Scripture itself, Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. So what I think we really should be asking is this, how is Jesus unique? Mm. How is Jesus different from Michael and Tom and a fly and a butterfly and a worm and a quirk? What makes Jesus different from the rest of us? That's the key question. Now, one answer could be, well, Jesus, as you said, had a divine nature, or God basically turned Jesus into a robot and did everything, you know, Jesus just did whatever God made him do. And I and the Father are one, in this case, could be interpreted as Jesus is just a God in in human form, and in, and then the mystery mm. is how God he can be Jesus or human as well, and that's mm. um, that gets us into all kinds of problems that I'm I'm willing to go into in this interview. But <laughs> <laughs> but let me just begin to say that that's where I think we get off board. If we think of the incarnation as the incarnation always, not just in one person of Jesus, we can start to make headway with the virgin birth and. Uh, this, quote, two natures doctrine. Okay. So, um, when, the ma- when that angel comes to Mary um, and she cooperates, I don't think that that angel puts in her womb a divine being. Mm-hmm. I think Mary has in her womb a truly human being. And what makes that human being different from Michael and Tom and everybody else is not the fact that the angel said, you're going to become pregnant. So in saying to, to Mary, you're going to become pregnant, there is, the, there is that kind of 
what is the phrase? The the shadow of the most high will I, I can't yes. the, the exact wording. You know, God will overshadow you essentially and yes. kind of there's the, it's the, two the, phrases there. Overshadow and come upon you. I mean, yes. it sounds very sexual. If you, it does, if, yeah, um, yeah. Which is which is a strange way to think about God's action in this case. Yes. Um, do you think it is plausible to say that that essentially God is saying I'm going to be in, involved in the conceiving of a? I mean, I know there's lots of translation issues around virgin, the word virgin itself, and yes, um, yes, yes, all sorts of speculative theories around around what what happened there. Do you think it's it's Possible to say that rather than God putting a divine baby in there, or or sort of um, sometimes, which is proposed oddly, some kind of divine sperm mixed with a you know a, a, a Mary's egg or something like that. If Jesus is fully human, do you see this as some kind of spontaneous or um, intervention? I guess you're not going to say it's interventionist. Um, yeah. How how do we conceive perhaps of, of what's happening there and? Jesus' conception. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know. If you do. I do, I do, and, and they're not all that articulate, but I'm going to throw them at you anyway. Right. <laughs> my question wasn't articulate, so it's fine. I think one of the things we need to keep in mind is that we have a 21st century view of how chromosomes, eggs, and sperm work that the writers of Scripture didn't have. Yeah. And so um, it was pretty common in that day to think that when uh, men, a man and a woman were having sex, the sperm contained everything necessary for this person to become. Mm. So the idea that Mary could would be contributing half the chromosomes, uh, you know, that wasn't really on anybody's mind at the yeah, time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's that doesn't answer your question, but it's it's important to keep that in mind. Second thing I think is uh, the way you worded it is is God involved in this? I think you said. Well, I think God's involved in all sexual activity, not just this one. So it's not that God is involved here and not when my wife and I are having sex. It's God's always involved. Mm-hmm. The question, though, I think is, well, what? What? how do we think about those other 23 chromosomes or however? Is that what it is, 23? I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where do those come from? Mm. And I don't have an answer to that, but I've got some speculation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, one could be that it's another person another man, uh, maybe this angel who comes to him is not a spiritual being, but is actual another human. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in the Bible, angels are actual people and not spiritual beings. There's one possibility. Um, you know, obviously, maybe Mary had sex with somebody else. That's another one, although that goes against, you know, this, her saying, I don't know, I've never known a man. That There's some problems there. Another one is, this is even wilder, um, somehow um, her genes, um, I can't even use the language here, but there have been instances in which other creatures can self-fertilize. So maybe this is an instance here. That gets a little harder for me to fathom, Mm. but um, that's on the table. Um, So at the end of the day, I don't have a good answer to that, but that's the way my mind goes in speculation. I think that's helpful, and I, you know, it, it might seem like a, to some people, it may seem like a funny conversation to dive into. But I think <laughs> increasingly in the in the twenty first century world, we've got to try and make some sense of these stories. Yes. Otherwise, otherwise, our our claims are so far removed from the reality that people experience. You know, if we've got this kind of set of set of faith claims that we we sort of have to assert, regardless almost of of what we come to know about life in the world and and reality. Yes. Um, and then the, the the gap between 
the claims we're making and our actual experience and knowledge of life becomes so wide that I think that I think faith itself becomes less less plausible over time. And and I wonder whether that's some of what's taken place in in the modern world. I mean, that's uh, much more than that. But I think yeah, I think there's something to that, Michael. That's good. Mm. I mean, so, we, we today yeah. we don't ask. Uh, I don't know who's a great leader. I'm going to pick a Barack Obama. Maybe some people don't think he's great, but let's say we. I'd say, let's I'd say, say mod, I'd say mod, my podcast audience will be fine with that. Okay. <laughs> Nobody's running around saying, you know, Barack Obama. His mother had sex with God. He's he was born of the gods. Mm. You know, his mother was a virgin. It wasn't some other man. It was God who impregnated her. But that was actually fairly common in Jesus' time, the yeah. Roman emperors were thought. So mm. it is a different way of thinking that we have today. And so we have to keep in, and to, in mind what people thought then and how we think today and as we try to make sense of this. And this kind of, yeah, this, this ancient idea that, that as you say, is, is apparent in other stories, which is someone yes. who is seen as being special or unique or having power or of some way being more aligned with the gods or, or whatever was, was often spoken about in these kinds of ways. It right. seems to be a way of telling that kind of story about a person like that. And so I, I think yep. that does give us some room to, to move and breathe here. <laughs> um, even the title son of God, which the Christian tradition has taken in very Trinitarian terms itself is something that emperors would, would claim and, and so on. So, and, and not only the emperors, biblical writers. David mm. was a son of God. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's let's come back then to the idea of so if we've got incarnation as a as a thoroughgoing idea throughout all of history, really. God, right. God is incarnating in in creation uh, all the time. What is then? Is there something unique about? The Jesus incarnation, or not, or is he just, yeah. or is he just a, a, you know, not just, but is he, um, is he a great guy who cooperated really well with God, um, and so forms a close relationship with God, um, or a, or a, a strong awareness of God? You know, where do you find yourself going here in the in the uniqueness yeah. conversation? I think, again, it's not in Jesus's case that God just tried a little harder. Mm. Um, so I'm going to say that Jesus cooperates with God. But because of this cooperation, certain aims, certain possibilities, we might even say certain plans, goals, and agendas that God has for the well-being of the world can materialize in a way that can't when you and I don't cooperate with God. So think about someone, I mean, it's hard to imagine this, but someone who just makes constantly the right decision over and over and over. If they did that, their character is going to become a kind of certain way. The experiences they have in relation to others is going to influence people in certain ways. They're going to be wiser. I mean, all these things begin to emerge. It's not that Jesus does it all on his own as if he's just, you know, it was all sort of compacted in his body or his mind and it's just sort of spilling forth no he he just like you and me has to respond to god's calling empowering and luring but when he does that consistently over and over in the particular environment that he's in the communities etc something emerges that makes him different 
from the rest of us, not entirely different. So I don't think he's like a, a third kind of being or a mm-hmm. third, you know, but he's special in a way that goes beyond how you and I are special. Um, there are other people in history who said similar things. In fact, Jesus says some things that are amazingly wise that other people said before him. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying like it was just, you know, we were in complete darkness before Jesus came on the scene. But all these things wrapped together mean that we have in Jesus someone, I think, who gives us the clearest revelation of God's nature of love, clearer than Gandhi, clearer than Martin Luther King, clearer than Muhammad, but not that those other people were morons and they didn't give us any you know, revelation either. So that's the kind of way I would want to talk about Jesus. And in the uh, scholarly community, this is sometimes called a spirit Christology. Mm-hmm. That is that Jesus cooperates with the spirit in such a way that we see in him the fullest revelation we have ever seen of God's nature of love. Right. So does that, um, I, I, I think that actually, I mean, this is, I've been, this has been going around my, my mind and uh, for, for a period of time now, and I've, as I've been yeah. contemplating um, Jesus and and the gospel stories themselves, which I I think aren't running around at every turn saying this is God walking among us. You know, no. um, Jesus is not saying that about himself. Either. No. Um, John's gospel probably goes the furthest in trying to to make some claims around um around the idea that somehow there is an identification to be made between this Jesus. And God, yes, and the I and the Father are one, and the and and so on. Um, it seems to me that the New Testament language is is a little blurry on this conversation. Actually, uh, perhaps less clear than our tradition becomes over time. Yeah, uh, subsequently, um, even Paul's language at times is Jesus is yeah the 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 representation of what God is like, or is the you know, we see God in in Christ, um, right. and and then there are other texts that seem to suggest there's this there's this divinity to Jesus, um, but but I'm not sure it's clear at any point through there exactly what is meant by that, and so the the, the Christian tradition has tried to work that out. Um, but what I'm hearing you say is that there is, in some sense, that there's similarity and difference between us and Jesus. Yes, but that the difference is more of degree, to some in some respects. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but the difference is more in perhaps degree than in kind, in the sense that that this is a this is a Jesus cooperating most fully and and therefore revealing God most fully, um, rather than Jesus is able to do that because Jesus is something entirely other. Is that? Is that a is that That's close fair. to what you're trying to say? Yes, I like mm. that degree and kind distinction. Mm-hmm. I would I would want to add that because of the degree of differences, there are new capacities that Jesus has that you and I don't have. Um, let me see if I can come up with an analogy off the top of my head. Um, uh, Louis Armstrong, an amazing trumpeter mm-hmm. who has died. Now, I happen to grow up playing the trumpet, haven't played in years, I've lost my chops, I, my lips would never even <laughs> probably do anything. But Louis Armstrong could do things with the trumpet that I could not do. We're both trumpet players. 
he differed in degree of expertise from me. But because that expertise was so amazingly higher than mine, he can do things that I can't even come close to do. It's not just that I couldn't, I'm not trying hard enough, but he's developed a way of playing the trumpet that makes him capable of doing things I'm just not capable of because I haven't developed it. If we apply that to Jesus and expand it, I think we can talk about how he is the same as us in kind, he's a human, but the degree to which he cooperates with God makes him unique, at least I want to claim as a Christian, unique amongst folks, uh, amongst people or creatures even, who can reveal who God's, what God's love is like. Okay, last, perhaps um, I think it's, it's very um, helpful. And uh, perhaps let's just push that into practice um, in terms of, worship of Jesus. Mm. So this is certainly something that's prevalent within most, if not all, Christian churches. Yeah. Um, Christ is one to be worshipped as God. Um, do you think the difference of, of degree is is so strong that that becomes appropriate? Or, or how, how would you understand that kind of... Or even yeah. the praying to, um, you know, how do, how do you see that? Yeah, I see those as different. I personally don't ever pray to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I pray to God. I don't have a hard time worshiping Jesus, however, because when I think of worship, I think uh, in terms of admiration and being in awe. Mm-hmm. And I am really in awe of this guy. <laughs> I mean, right. I've tried to pattern my life around him. He, he's just an amazing guy. Um, now, one might make the argument that there are some biblical passages that say you should only worship God and God alone, and, mm-hmm. and that would go against my practice here. Uh, here, in those kinds of cases, I think that has something to do with having our full allegiance or commitment. Mm-hmm. And my full allegiance is to God. I think God is revealed most clearly in Jesus, so I don't see a, a, a massive incongruity there that's going on. Um, but yeah, that's how I'm kind of thinking about it. I'm still working that all out. But I think maybe the clearest answer to how I think about Jesus is when I say I don't pray to Jesus. Mm. I, I just don't um, think about Jesus as hearing my prayers. I, I suspect Jesus is a, continues to have subjective experience somewhere in uh, reality. But I don't think Jesus can necessarily be affected by my prayer like God can be affected by my prayer. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about um, relationship with God, even. Yes. I suppose uh, from our conversations, I've picked up some similarities between our uh, um, spirituality in, in earlier years. <laughs> um, yeah. And that kind of pietist uh, almost, you know, spirituality, which, which I think in in my tradition at least was was not just relationship with God, but was this personal relationship with Jesus. You know, where yes. where um, so more than just sort of admiring and saying and and and, and praise, I suppose, is, is a way of saying, look at these amazing things. Yeah. Um, but this kind of me and Jesus, um, yeah, kind of motif, meme almost. You know, the the the, the me and Jesus thing um is that something you would you would lean away from now is that something that you were familiar with in the early in your er, earlier spiritual oh, yes and, yeah definitely yeah yeah i lean away from the me and jesus thing now mostly because i have a stronger sense of community and i always 
when I think of me and Jesus, you know, I think of old songs I used to sing that sounded like it was all up to just me and just Jesus and everybody else, you know, stay out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but now, <laughs> and now I, li- I think of the world and, and the church as much more integral in an mm. interrelated kind of way. So it's not me as an isolated individual and Jesus as that person is that's all that matters. So that's one of the reasons I, I lean away from Jesus and me language. Mm. Um, and there's a, having, a, oh, sorry, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say one more quick thing and having a personal relationship with Jesus, I don't use that language anymore because what it used to mean for me, uh, was probably something like, uh, making sure I didn't go to hell. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that I was doing my morning devotionals, reading my Bible and that sort of thing. Um, I could probably use that language today. I would just have a different interpretation of the implications of sure. it. But I've just kind of shied away from that language in the last few decades. And and actually, it's not particularly – the New Testament's not demanding that kind of language of us. No. It's something no. that's emerged in our, in our traditions as a way of trying to speak of. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I wonder whether, um, in another sense, if we're able to uphold the relationality of all – uh, of all things, um, if this relational God incarnates in all of reality, there's an interconnectedness to things yes. that is um, perhaps more than a philosophical idea. We're, we're talking that a genuine interconnectedness and interrelatedness between all things. Then in yes. some sense, we are connected to Jesus Yes, uh, you know, as as we are to one another in community, and um, and and that becomes then a, perhaps an invitation into a much broader sense of what it means to to relate to to God and to one another and to and to Jesus and to creation itself. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Maybe maybe here's an illustration. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, about eleven years old, I picked up a book on an African American. Um, person named Frederick Douglass here in the United States. He was a major abolitionist fighting against slavery. And uh, that book was radical. I mean, it like changed my view of things. And from that moment on, I've always really admired Frederick Douglass. Now, um, am I related to Frederick Douglass? Well, in a way I am because I read his story. Those ideas still resonate in me. And those ideas have a continuing relational impact upon the world. So, yes, I am. But uh, I suspect Frederick Douglass continues to have subjective experiences beyond his death. In other words, he still has some kind of uh, reality somewhere in the universe. And this is the afterlife stuff that we have to go to another time. Um, Do I have communication with this, we'll call it the mind of of Frederick Douglass? I kind of doubt it. Mm. I'm open to the possibility that maybe he could find me and have some influence on my mind, but probably not most of the time. Um, So while he could continue to have subjective experiences and be related within the universe, I doubt very much of the time it's directly related with my mind. Now let's use that analogy with Jesus. Does Jesus have direct relationship with my mind? I kind of doubt it. Uh, does God? I think God always does. Mm. Uh, so that's how I think about it. Sure. Okay, that's helpful. Um, all right. Let's uh, 
let's go last question. Okay. Uh, and this is this is actually backing, uh, well, moving away from the the Jesus conversation, right back to the the big idea of love. Good. Um, God is on controlling love. Um, what does it what does it mean to say God loves us, Tom? Mm-hmm. That's because we've talked a lot about about love and about God loving us, or yeah. at least about God's love not being controlling. Yes. Um, but what but what is God's love then? What, what does it mean to say this? Let me preface my answer by saying this, Michael. <laughs> what I want most in my life is to live a life of love. And what I believe most about God is that God loves me and all creation. So I've thought a lot about your question. <laughs> what does it mean for God to love me? I think love, first and foremost, has to do with acting for the well-being of others. The biblical writers might use the word shalom or blessedness or abundant life or even salvation. Today, we might use words like well-being, flourishing, eudaimonia, happiness, etc., etc. I think ultimately that's what God's love is about. Now, I think God also acts intentionally. Like I actually think God is an agent in reality. Even though I'm a panentheist, I think God is personal or relational. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think God is ultimately in relationship with all of reality. So love for me is an intentional act in relationship with others, including God, that promotes overall well-being. So when God loves me, God intentionally acts in relationship with me and all my surroundings to promote my well-being in light of the whole, the good, the overall well-being, or the common good. It's a little philosophical, but that's how I, I think about God's no, I, love for me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's fantastic. And I, I think it's it's very helpful to just land there uh so rather than this kind of ethereal sense um, <laughs> yeah. that, that God God loves me, you know, uh, yeah. what what does that actually mean in, in real terms? I think it's just a helpful place to to land the conversation. Excellent. Um, well, this has been brilliant, and uh, I've enjoyed it too. You've pressed me to think about things in a different way, and I appreciate that. Okay. Well, I, well, I appreciate you you taking the time, and uh, look forward. Sometime to round three, you know, and uh, <laughs> we'll solve all of the other issues. We're just, you know, just ticking them all off. Tom, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> all the well, in this, in this new book, one of the chapters is on the afterlife. Uh, and a lot of that chapter I had actually written for another publication. Uh, so it's, it's something I've been thinking a lot about. Mm. And uh, I'm getting more and more, well, not since the pandemic, but before the pandemic, I was getting more invitations to talk about uh, life after death. So I'm up for that conversation when you are, Michael. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> um, and I'm going to, I'll put up the link to, to the new, uh, the questions and answers uh, book to, to in, this, in this podcast info. Thank you. And, and send it out to, to the listeners as well. So I'd encourage everyone to, to check it out. All right. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. So there you go, a big, wide-ranging conversation on all things Jesus with uh, with Thomas J. Ord. I hope you found something in that uh, that was meaty or interesting or curious or or whatever it might have been for you. Um, if you are someone who's a theology um, nerd like me, 
Uh, maybe you're studying, maybe you're in fact thinking about doing something like a PhD or you know somebody who is working towards that in theology. Uh, Tom just wanted to let you know that, that there is now the op- opportunity to study a, a PhD program in open and relational theology with Thomas J. Ord. And so uh, here's a little bit of information about that just to finish the episode. Uh, so that's going to come up shortly. Uh, otherwise, thanks as always to Reese Michelle for helping me try and make this podcast sound as good as possible. And uh, we'll see you next time with more conversation about Jesus. Are you ready for the next step? Is it time to pursue your doctorate? Northwind Theological Seminary offers a fully online doctoral program to help you move ahead. This DTM, Doctorate in Theology and Ministry, centers on issues in open and relational theology. World-renowned theologian Thomas J. Ord directs this program. You'd work directly with Dr. Ord to explore open and relational topics that interest you. As a fully online startup institution, Northwind's doctoral program is far less expensive than other programs. Scholarships are also available. As a doctoral student, you set your own pace. You can work around your personal, family, or work schedules, and you'll likely finish the degree in less than three years. The Doctorate in Theology and Ministry is co-sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which Dr. Ord directs. You'll have access to Center's resources and get to know its community of scholars, activists, practitioners, and educators. For more information, see the seminary website or search Open and Relational Theology at Northwind. It's time to pursue your doctoral degree. Reach out to Northwind now.